We are back. I think at this juncture, I'm going to just uh, air what we meant to air on last week's program. We recorded it, but didn't air it because of the time constraints of our lengthy conversation with Steve Alexander. So without further ado. All right. Now, I hate to do this, but we're going to have to revive our Jackass of the Week award. And we're going to have to bestow it on a rather unlikely recipient. In this case, the editors of the Sacramento Bee. Now, we like the Bee. We quote from it all the time. We think the McClatchy News Organization is first rate. And they usually get things right. But not always. <laughs> to this correspondent's astounding disappointment, the Bee has come out in favor of Phil Angelides's McVillage project, wherein 320 homes are going to be placed in a smog trap between the freeway and Sacramento's rail lines. Noted the Bee in their baffling editorial, to grow without growing out, Sacramento must take advantage of old vacant land within the city core to build homes and neighborhoods of the future. It's an astonishing beginning since everybody from the city councilman on down seemed to realize that this would be an ideal site for a park. The editors went on, whether it's the Curtis Park Rail Yard or Northwest Land Park site of the old seltzer plant, the city seeks a mix of housing types and affordability for families of different incomes to meet the need for a projected 24,000 homes within the next eight years. Okay, why does Sacramento require 24,000 new homes in the next eight years? We reported on this program of going to, I guess it was the Planning Commission, or I don't know exactly what it was, uh, a couple weeks back, and just seeing how the fix was in. Well, this is worse than we thought. The B notes that opponents to the project have pointed to potential floods that would require evacuation from the area, which is true. And apparently the Environmental Impact Report points out that the railroad embankment in nearby Sutter's Landing Regional Park are above 100-year flood depths and would be considered a safe haven during a flood. Keep in mind that not that long ago, somebody certified our levees north of Natomas as having 200-year flood protection to them. Some suspect that the commercial interests that wanted to develop this area, which apparently are some of the same people that want to develop the uh, McVillage region, may have unduly swayed some of the decision makers to uh, come to that conclusion. The B thinks that if the 40th Street Tunnel were closed during a flood, residents would exit via the A Street Bridge. They note that access is no reason to reject the project, though the developer and city planners should continue to explore a third access point at Alhambra Boulevard. Well, over the years, we've puzzled on this program over the short-sighted mania uh, cities seem to have, Sacramento seems to have in particular, for development. It's just a, a disease in California. And although we certainly plan to continue talking about this potential fiasco on this program, for the moment, let's just give the B its award. All right, let's take the sting of our criticism away just a little by noting that the Sacramento Bee has won a 2013 Knight Research Prize for Western Environmental Journalism. This went to Tom Knudsen for the piece we quoted extensively on this program on um, the Department of Agriculture's Wildlife Services. 
Knudsen noted that uh, since 2000, its employees have killed nearly a million coyotes. They've destroyed millions of birds, from non-native starlings to migratory shorebirds, along with a colorful menagerie of more than 300 other species, including black bears, beaver, porcupine, river otters, mountain lions, and wolves. And in most cases, they have officially revealed little or no detail about where the creatures were killed or why. The bee investigation found that the agency's practices were indiscriminate, at odds with science, inhumane, and sometimes just flat-out illegal. So, a round of applause for Tom Knudsen. Good work. But uh, then again, I was very disappointed to see what the bee had to say about the 50th anniversary last Sunday. Marcos Bertone sounded off with a, Count me out of the JFK club. Among his bloviations were the following. Can you imagine how JFK would have been ripped on Twitter after the Bay of Pigs? <laughs> or how about this insight? Can you imagine how Rush Limbaugh would have mocked JFK for seeming weak before Fidel Castro? Gosh, Marcos, no, I, I hadn't thought of that. Although it's right up there with, can you imagine if Abraham Lincoln had been a vampire killer? Then the Bee thoughtfully also had their cartoonist, Jack Oman, sound off about how the Kennedy slaying answers elude us, which was a good start. Because as we've talked in this program for the past few weeks, quite a few answers still elude us. Mr. Oman shares the insight that when he went to Dealey Plaza and went up on the grassy knoll, he came to the conclusion that, well, no one saw a man firing a rifle from the grassy knoll. So he came to the sad conclusion that it was Oswald acting alone. Now, curiously, our Secretary of State made mention a few weeks back that, uh, well, he said, to this day, I have serious doubts that Lee Harvey Oswald acted alone. Within days of making that statement, our Secretary of State decided to clam up on the topic. A little piece from uh, Marcia Recio from the McClatchy's Washington Bureau, titled, Theories Surrounding JFK Slaying Thrive. Had one little tidbit I didn't know. Republican political consultant Roger Stone has written a book on the topic titled The Man Who Killed Kennedy, The Case Against LBJ. Well, we have our doubts about Roger Stone. He's the guy that gave Al Sharpton something like $20 million to keep him before the public as, well, apparently some sort of viable candidate for the Democratic nomination a few years back. Brilliant politics in a kind of a Machiavellian way, but... Makes us wonder if his book isn't the same thing. Right, let's move off of Kennedy for a minute. Um, interesting program on the Discovery Channel about uh, the Challenger explosion and the investigation that took place into it. It focused on the work of Richard P. Feynman, someone we admire a great deal. I think that the uh, plot for this um, made-for-TV movie may have come from his book, What Do You Care What Other People Think? It certainly delved into the politics of an investigation and how there's a lot of cover-your-ass going on and how you have to ask the right questions of the right people to get the answers you seek. Luckily for the investigation into the Challenger, Feynman was on the case. I wish we'd had him involved in the Warren Report back in 64. But he had an interesting quote in his book, What Do You Care What Other People Think? Which might be worth a quote or two. Feynman points out that he was down in Huntsville trying to ask the engineers what had happened when uh, William Rogers, who'd been encouraging him to stick with the group and stay up in Washington, was uh, before a committee investigating the matter. Noted Feynman, Senator Hollings from South Carolina was giving Rogers a hard time. 
saying, Secretary Rogers, I'm anxious that you have adequate staff there. How many investigators does your commission have? We don't have investigators in the police sense. We're reading documents, understanding what they mean, organizing hearings, writing to witnesses, that sort of thing, said Hollings. Well, that's the point. From my experience in investigating cases, I want four or five investigators steeped in science and space technology going around down there at Canaveral, talking to everybody, eating lunch with them. You'd be amazed if you eat when the restaurant's around there for two or three three weeks, what you'll find out. You can't just sit and read what's given to you, said Feynman. Roger says, we're not going to just sit and read. We've gotten a lot of people in a room and asked them questions at the same time rather than have a gumshoe walking around talking to people one at a time, said Hollings. I understand. Yet I'm concerned about your product if you don't have some gumshoes. That's the trouble with presidential commissions. I've been on them. They go on what's fed to them, and they don't look behind it. Then we end up with investigative reporters, people writing books and everything else. People are still investigating the Warren Commission report around this town. Well, Senator Hollings, indeed they are. One curious aspect about the shuttle and the whole shuttle program, which was kind of a a flaw in groupthink, was that the engineers estimated that... uh, they would have one failure in every 10,000 launches, which had Feynman incredulously asking them, you mean to tell me you could launch every day and expect to go 30 years before there was an accident? And, of course, they kind of hemmed and hawed and said, well, we, we, you know, we, we, not exactly. He found out that the engineers that really knew what the score was estimated the chances of a shuttle failure to be about one in 300. This discussion got this correspondent curious about uh, the failure rate of the space shuttle. So I looked on the web and found out that there were a total of 135 missions, two of which failed completely and killed their crews of seven. Both the launch of the Challenger back in 1986 and the reentry of the Columbia in 2003. So looking back on it, the actual flight failure rate of the space shuttle program was 1.5%, which would have grounded any other vehicle permanently. And I think luckily for the space program, currently there will be no more shuttle flights. Now we're big boosters of the space program in general. We think there should be manned flights to asteroids, to the moon, and to Mars. This MAVEN mission, which was just launched to the planet Mars, will, studle, will study climate change, at least what took place on Mars, because we know there has been a rather dramatic change in the Martian climate over the eons. We just don't know why. And The Economist notes some rather hair-raising uh, discoveries from satellite monitoring going, here, going down here on planet Earth. Apparently Laos, the northern part of Laos, is being deforested in an astonishing manner. It's been noted that uh, it's very recent and it's very extreme. Scientists in Europe are using Laos as a testing ground for a new method of monitoring economic activity from space. By combining nighttime satellite images with land use data, they can estimate with surprising accuracy changes in agriculture and non-agricultural activity. From what I can see from this article, this deforestation is going to be a prelude to planting um, various uh, uh, rubber concessions that the Chinese are going to take advantage of. Evidently, Chinese firms have secured rubber concessions in this Laotian province, and it covers uh, 74,000 acres. The magazine notes that more land is now in the hands of foreigners than is used, than is used to grow rice. And, and the fear of one expert in Laos is the emergence of a landless poor. Yikes. And how about this item? A little more closer to home regarding our uh, 
worldwide war on drugs, quote-unquote. Apparently, narco-traficantes and uh, marauding gangsters have become so pervasive down in Mexico's state of Michoacan that vigilantes are trying to take over the running of the state. Article by Tim Johnson, McClatchy Foreign Staff, notes that uh, Michoacan is a state that's been virtually controlled by organized crime for seven years and perhaps longer. Peace notes that most mayors and municipal police forces are, are subject to or in cahoots with criminals, and the rumor keeps growing that the state government is also at the service of organized crime. And although federal police and the army have been deployed in the state, not a single one of the capos of organized crime has been captured, even though their whereabouts are known. So apparently about 5,000 civilians have joined self-defense groups. They're armed with uh, shotguns, AK-47s, AR-15s, 22s, hunting rifles, etc. This is clearly a story that's uh, worth keeping an eye on, and, and I wonder what the NRA has to say about this. Could it be that an armed citizenry is going to strike a blow for justice? Well, we'll have to see how that pans out. And how about this item from New Scientist magazine? Western Canada's sardine fleet returned with no fish this month. The loss of the fishery, normally worth $32 million Canadian, took many by surprise. Yet, researchers warned last year that it could happen. Magazine notes that there still are sardines off the U.S. Pacific coast, but the vanishing of the Canadian fish is part of a process that could mean they all disappear for decades says Juan Zwolinski of the University of California at Santa Cruz. They note that Pacific sardine populations fluctuate with water temperature. Colder water means fewer fish. Temperatures reportedly last fell in the 40s, but heavy fishing continued, which devastated the stock and ended fishing until sardines returned when the waters warmed in the 80s. Said Zwolinski, we think it is set to happen again. He found that sardines have reproduced less since waters cooled in the 90s, noting that almost all eggs now come from fish born a decade ago, which are nearly gone. Yet Canada, for its part, continued to up its quotas. Another example of how the world's fisheries are in deep trouble. All right, how about this? Dovetailing with the story about people who need more hobbies, uh, trying to fight redskins being used as a mascot in various sports teams. Of course, I was intrigued by the fact that apparently... Uh, a school down in Thermal, their mascot's called the Arabs. B had a picture of the Coachella Valley High School's mascot, Arab, dancing during a pep rally. I think we just have to close this segment with a quote from George Carlin, who said, Being Irish, I guess I should resent the Notre Dame nickname, the Fighting Irish. After all, how long do you think nicknames like the Bargaining Jews or the Murdering Italians would last? No, only the ironic Irish could be so naively honest. I got the feeling that Notre Dame came close to naming itself the friggin' drunken, thick-skulled, brawling, short-peckered Irish while they were at it. All right, we don't talk about plumbing very often in this program (laughs) because, well, it's just it's not something that comes up in public affairs a great deal, but today would be an exception. We have a piece I've been sitting on here for some months from the Bee, a uh, piece by Carolyn Thompson, Dateline Bemis Point, New York, which which caught our eye right away because, boy, Bemis Point just doesn't seem to make the news all that often. But the headline was, Bathroom Wipes Blamed for Sewer Clogs. 
He starts out noting that increasingly popular bathroom wipes, pre-moistened towelettes that are often advertised as flushable, are being blamed for creating clogs and backups in sewer systems around the nation. Wastewater authorities say wipes may go down the toilet, but even many labeled flushable aren't breaking down as they course through the sewer system. That's costing some municipalities millions of dollars to dispatch crews to unclog pipes and pumps and to replace and upgrade machinery. The problem got so bad in this western New York community, that would be Bemis Point, that sewer officials set up traps to figure out which households the wipes were coming from. They mailed letters and then pleaded in person for residents to stop flushing them. Wow. This sounds horrible. And to comment on this is our local plumbing correspondent, Evo Kovacevic. Welcome back to Radio Parallax, Evo. Thank you. Now, as a local plumber, this would be an issue, I think, for you, too. Are you finding this is a problem here in, in the greater Sacramento area? In the daily basis. Really? Yes. So you're being called out on a daily basis because people are using these disposable wipes and clogging up their toilet systems. Most of the time, it's a baby uh, wipes and uh, thumplex. So it's a lack of uh, low-flush toilets. Uh -huh. So if you're using... Uh, Baby wipes and tampons put in the toilet, that thing's not going to go very far. <laughs> it's going to make no more than six feet past the toilet traps. Yikes. And um, I presume that it's made worse by these, these low-flow toilets that people think is such a great idea. They are horrible. It's an entire toilet industry, probably one of the two toilets who would work. And one of them would be... Japanese Toto. It's not great either. Uh -huh. You gotta have plunger next to it every <laughs> third time when you plunge. Wow. You know, I've got to say, I, I used a toilet. I'm trying to think of where this was uh, recently. Uh, there was I don't know where it was, but but I noticed that when you use this particular toilet, it was a, one of the low flow variety. It virtually explodes. I mean, there's this there's this like whoosh that takes place, and I thought you hate to think about this, but. There's got to be some material in the toilet that's getting aerosolized by this process, which just can't be good. That could be power flush toilet that you use. Yeah, well, this, it must be spraying out what was just left in the bowl to some degree, yes? Yes, that's a power flush. Well, clearly, I think we need some toilet reform here in the United States. But uh, but I guess I guess the first thing you'd point out is, you know, I it's hard for me to believe that, that people still don't understand that you can't put tampons down a toilet but i guess you you, you deal with that all the time absolutely People, if you put they, they have not got the message nobody got message and the <laughs> box of the tampons is say flushable it does it's say flushable and it's a totally lie it's no flushable i did not realize that yes, they put on flushable. the box that they're flushable i try to educate my clients telling them don't flush it then bring me box in and they say it's flushable they say it's flushable <laughs> who is the person who put that sign on it it's flushable well, you know, to quote further from this piece, they note that up in Vancouver, Washington, sewer officials say wipes labeled as flushable are a big part of the problem that has caused the city to spend more than $1 million in the last five years replacing three large sewage pumps and eight smaller ones that were routinely clogging. So I guess on the way to the sewage treatment plant, there are pumps that basically chop up the material and, and they're just clogging them up, I guess, eh? It's a break the pump because pump working harder when they do have hard... Uh material on it except water mm -hmm. you know and it's working under uh, high pressure mm -hmm. and they broke so it costs money in the three four different ways you pay plumber you repair the pump you repair the sewer line <laughs> so it's never ended 
Well, I guess the punchline is if you don't want to call Evo, stop flushing this stuff down your toilet. Absolutely. Don't flush Tamplex and baby wipes, period. And, if and you do have 1.2 gallon flush toilet, flush twice. Number one, one flush. Number two, two flush. You maybe be fine with a plunger. Wow. Well, so all this whole idea we're going to save all this water by these, these low-flow toilets just means everyone's going to flush twice now. You don't save the water. I think we spend more water with a low-flush toilet than all toilets we had 3.5-gallon flush. Most people, they flush toilet today anywhere between two and three times as they use. Well, Evo, thanks for that update. Well, we will bring you back as, as there are further developments in this area, as I'm sure there will be. Thank you, Jack. All right, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm your faithful host, Douglas Everett.